You're listening to the Ali at UNT podcast, produced by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. Learn something new in every episode as we interview UNT faculty, subject matter experts, and lifelong learners in our community. To learn more about our non-credit courses and events, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. We're fortunate to have the chance to speak again with Scott Keister, a retired geologist with an MS in environmental science, who is also a certified Texas master naturalist and Audubon master birder for North Central Texas. In episode 25 of the Ali at UNT podcast, we talked to Scott about bird migration patterns and how the work of master naturalists and master birders impact the environment and our communities. Today, we're going to talk about winter birding among some other helpful birding tips. Welcome back, Scott. Well, thank you for inviting me back, Susan. It's great to talk to you. We are very fortunate to live in a state full of an amazing number of bird species. And I know many people go birding in the spring and fall when the birds migrate through our area, but here we are getting ready to enter into the cold winter months. So I'm assuming the migration patterns have been completed. What can we do as far as birding in the winter months? Migration is over, but that means that while we've lost summer birds, we've gained winter birds. Among other things, we really only have one species of sparrow, native sparrow, that lives here year-round. That's the lark sparrow. But there are 14 others that have come to town. So there's lots of opportunities to see birds that are not here in the summer. That's also true of a lot of waterfowl. There aren't very many ducks that are around here in the summer, but there's all kinds of ducks around here in the winter. There are at least a few shorebirds that show up here and stick around that don't head on further south. There are birds like some of the warblers that are here in the summer are gone, although we do have two winter warblers. Um, The very, very plain, very quiet little orange-crowned warbler that really looks like just a little green bird is here all winter long, and so is the yellow-rumped warbler. And there are actually two subspecies of yellow rumps, and occasionally we'll see the one that's native to the western United States. Mostly we see the one that's native to the eastern United States. But there are lots of birds here in the winter that aren't here in the summer, and all those evil leaves have fallen from the trees, so the birds are so much easier to see. Nice. I hadn't thought about that. That's great. Are these birds that are coming from the north and they're coming down here to get warm during the winter? Yeah, this is, uh, there really aren't birds that come up here for the winter from further south. There are lots and lots of birds that come here from farther north and spend their winters in and around the Dallas-Fort Worth area just in Texas in general, but in North Texas specifically, since that's where we are. But it's definitely come down here to find slightly warmer weather and better food. Well, I have read that there are over 600 species 
of birds in Texas, that it is a very large number of birds per state. Why does Texas have so many different species? It's because we have the two populations and the, the count you're referring to doesn't count to just the summer visitors, the winter visitors, and the year-round residents. It also counts everybody who passes through. Ah. And the birds that pass through come from largely from the central flyway, but they can also come from the Pacific and the Atlantic flyways. Birds don't necessarily read the guidebooks that say they're always in a certain place. And so depending on the weather, we can see birds that pass through the Atlantic coast will pass through Texas. We occasionally see birds that migrate down the Pacific flyway will pass through Texas. They may not pass through Texas here, but they'll pass through within the state. Now you said how many birds are native to the state of Texas, and I'm going to Google that real quick and find out. <laughs> huh, have been found in Texas. Over 615 species of birds. So you were right, 600 and a little bit. Now, answer this for me. Why would we want to learn about birds? Oh, good heavens. Why would you not want to learn about birds? I agree uh, with you. <laughs> I think a more real question is, what do you want to learn about birds? I think that there's lots of different ways to approach birding. There's people bird who are just out there to identify the bird and move on. I know people who have county lists who keep track of which birds they've seen in which counties. That's a, a bit much for me. I, I have a life list and I have a Texas life list. I'm much more fascinated by the behavior of birds. I can identify probably 85% of the birds I look at just by going, oh yes, that's a, an orange crowned warbler, or yes, that's a, a dark-eyed junco or something like that. But it's more fun to me, because, and it can be more fun for everybody. Particularly, let's, let's just take as an example of dark-eyed junco. It is one of our winter birds. It's basically a sparrow, or at least a member of the, of the same groups, which means it lives on the ground, feeds on the ground, and is sort of a smallish bird. But dark-eyed juncos have six or seven different subspecies. And some of them migrate, some of them don't. They are from different parts of the country. One of the fun things I do in the wintertime, uh, I do Cornell University's Project Feeder Watch, which I, I heartily recommend everybody do because it's lots of fun. Can you tell us a little bit about that for the listeners that don't know what that is? Oh, sure. From November to April every year, the Cornell Ornithology Lab enlists about 30,000 of us folks to watch the birds at our feeders in the backyard for as little as an hour a week or as much as you would like. I usually watch for two to three hours a week over a two-day period and then record everything you see. And if you want to take the next step, you can record behaviors between the different birds. And that data has been used. It's been 1980-something that they started Feeder Watch. That data has been used in all kinds of different ways to watch bird populations, to see how populations in an area will change from year to year, and go back and compare that to different changes in the weather or changes 
in the breeding area, breeding habitat of a certain bird that would move to a different place to spend the winter and, and go to feeders. All kinds of neat stuff can happen. It's all 15 bucks a year, so it's well within the financial reach of most people. Even my cheapskate sister in Michigan uses it. So um, you, you know that it's fun to do. And it's a, way to find, it's a way to get more comfortable with your winter birds. But to cycle back to the uh, juncos here for a second, there are three or four different subspecies that sometimes show up in North Texas. Normally, you just see what are called slate-colored juncos. They're these little grayish birds that may have a, the males have a darker head, and they have a white bill and white outer tail feathers. But there's also the pink-sided junco, which is native only to the Rocky Mountains, and a few of those will show up here every winter. So one of my goals every year is to see a pink-sided junco somewhere out in one of my feeders. And there's also the Oregon junco, which has quite a bit of brown in it. And that's a little bit further stretch, but I have seen a couple from time to time. So there's lots of bird washing to be done in the winter. I have had the good fortune to be with you on several of your bird walks. And I have to say, I'm always impressed by the fact that you can hear a bird sound and you know basically what it is. You know where to look. You can point it out to people. That's amazing. So for people that are new to birding, I can imagine that it really helps to be with someone, right? It helps to walk with an expert. It helps to go with somebody who knows what they're doing. Always. The, the best way to learn to bird is to just start by looking at the birds in your backyard. But if you type in bird walks near me into Google and you do it like I did, I did right before we started talking, a whole list of them comes up in the immediate Dallas-Fort Worth area. It's always good to go out with people who have some knowledge that they can share. And trust me, birders are amongst the most gregarious people on the planet. They are more than willing to share their passion with you. So find a bird walk. It's easy to do. Like I said, type in bird walks near me and it just brings up a list. I was hiking one day on the Appalachian Trail close to it in New York, and there was a man that was going in and out of the bushes, and I had to say, what are you looking for? And he said, I'm looking for a very, it's a soft brown bird. Well, we remembered that, soft brown bird. And so I went on a bird walk out here in Arlington. What do they call that? The the wet area where the... Oh, uh, the, the drying beds? Yes, the drying beds. And yeah. lo and behold, the person leading the walk had a license plate on it that said very. <laughs> she was thrilled that I actually knew what that was. A very is a thrush. Very. Is it a very? Well, that's how I pronounce it. But I'm an untutored Midwestern corn farmer. Who knows how it's supposed to really be pronounced? Hey, I bow to you in anything bird-wise. So... Are there best places to find birds you mentioned just right in your backyard at a bird oh feed? Um, it's, always, it's always good if you have a suburban setting or even an apartment complex. My mother-in-law lived in a, a senior's apartment and had a bird feeder on her back window and got all kinds of birds all winter long. But start by getting familiar with the birds in your backyard. Then venture out into a park. There are reasonably priced courses you can take through Cornell and Audubon that are basic birding courses. 
I'm not sure if anybody up around here teaches classes like that, but I know in the Houston area, there's, uh, I can't think of the name now, and it probably won't come back until sometime tonight, <laughs> in the middle of my grandson's basketball game or something. But there are individuals that will actually teach birding to people. Sometimes it's very expensive and sometimes it's very cheap. It depends on the situation and the individual. But there's lots of resources out there to learn. But the best way to start is to find a bird walk. There are bird walks every month up at Lake Ray Roberts. There are bird walks, well, I lead a bird walk at, at uh, Clear Creek Natural Heritage Center in Denton every month. There's a bird walk at Leela outside of Louisville every month, except for July and August because Sue doesn't like to walk in the heat. There are lots of them around. A good place to go in the Denton area, if you, you know, I'm assuming a good many of the listeners are from Denton, is North Lake Park. The lake there often attracts a lot of ducks and several different varieties. Oh, there's something I can suggest to new birders. There are two uh, phone apps or iPad apps you can get. One is called Merlin Bird ID, which is put out by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And it's marvelous. It's like five questions to the bird that you're looking at. Size, color, habitat, time of year. The phone actually knows where you are. So it's, it's going to limit the list of those birds it knows are right around you. And it'll end up giving you, after five or six questions, a list of four or five birds with pictures. And for that matter, recordings of sound. And you can also record a sound in Merlin. Now they have a, a sound recording option where you can record a sound and it'll attempt to identify the bird from that. There's also another, and that's free. And there's also another free app called Birds Near Me, which I use all the time. It taps into eBird, which is a nationwide birding database, also run by Cornell. And you can set it for how many days in the past and how many miles away. And it will, it will tell you what birds have been reported in eBird in that time span and that distance. I use it all the time. Hmm. So that's uh, Merlin and Birds Near Me are great places one, to get information on how to identify a bird once you've seen it, and another, to find out what's in the neighborhood. I actually used Merlin when they first released that sound ID, and yeah. I discovered birds in my backyard. I had no idea that were there. Mm. It was terrific because then I knew to start looking around and seeing where it was and comparing it. It's really very sensitive, too. It, it is. I was I was out at Leela yesterday afternoon and I, I heard a bird. I didn't I did not recognize the call and I recorded it. And it, lo and behold, it was a it was a yellow rumped warbler. But I've never heard a yellow rumped warbler call that before. So I quick whip back to my my handy dandy phone version of Audubon. And yes, it's in there amongst the amongst the winter calls. So learn something new yesterday afternoon. Wow, that impresses me that you learned something new. You do your bird walks at Clear Creek, and I recommend them highly. Someone, I spoke to someone the other day who lives near there, and she commented on all the, what she called white pelicans that were oh, there. Yeah. She said just flocks of them. What was that? Oh, they're white pelicans. They're American white pelicans. Uh, they breed in the northern tier of the United States and the Pacific Northwest. And then since it's 
snowy and cold and icy up there, they fly down here and sit on the lakes and rivers. Any of the area lakes, the larger ones probably, but any of the area lakes will have a pelican population this winter. If you'd like to see them, wait until we get a rainstorm and either go to the green belt south of Lake Ray where you can see the outflow. There's that, the, the Trinity cuts through down there on its way to Louisville, right below the outflow of the lake, either at Lake Ray or at Lake Louisville. The pelicans will congregate just out of the outflow from the dam and wait because as the water comes out of the dam, the fish get stunned and they sort of float to the surface and the pelicans just sit there on the water and scoop them up. I had no idea there were white pelicans. Oh, yes. I can't wait to look for them. So now that we're in a time of COVID, do you have anything to say to people who might be concerned about going on a bird walk in this time of COVID? I don't know. Um, we did bird walks all last year, every month. We did, at the height of things, everybody masked up. But as things started to, to slow down a little bit, um, my official opinion is you're outdoor. And this is, this is based on my, my personal medical team, which is a nurse, a nurse practitioner, and a, and a professor of biology, either my wife or my daughters. The general consensus is as long as you're outside and you don't feel sick and no one with you feels sick, probably you're okay. Yeah. Now, that's not 100%, of course, you know, and past performances, no indication of future, etc. <laughs> but we didn't have any issues. I mean, you know, I'm also the, the volunteer project manager at Lila, which is the Louisville Lake Environmental Learning Area down in, below the dam from Louisville Lake. We ran volunteer activities all but two weeks of last year, and we did not have a single case transmitted on the property. That's great news. And we keep track. If you show up there to volunteer, you will sign a contract tracing sheet so people know where you were. We did have a couple of volunteers actually come down with COVID, but they didn't contract it on the property, nor did they pass it along to anybody on the property. So if you're worried about it, mask up you're outside, you'll be fine. That's the official word of my unofficial medical team. And your walks at Clear Creek, they're every month, the last Saturday. Is that correct? That is correct. At 7.30? So someone could just come to Clear Creek at 7.30 in the morning, or do you prefer that they sign up? How does that work? Okay. Here's the thing. It is planned to be the last Saturday of the month, whether it's the fourth or the fifth Saturday. However, the last Saturday of December is going to be Christmas Day. So we won't be going out on Christmas Day. The next Saturday, obviously, as, as is always, is New Year's Day. We could go out on New Year's, except that I will be shepherding a whole bunch of grandchildren around some ski resort in Colorado. So we will go out the second Saturday in January, which is going to be the 7th or 8th, I think. It moves around. Unless something comes up where I can't be there, it'll be the last Saturday of the month. And probably 10 times out of 12, it is the last Saturday of the month without fail. The way to check is to go to the Elm Fork Master Naturalist website and click on the thing that says events. It lists that bird walk every month. And if I change it, they know ahead of time 
that it's changed. So that's Elm Fork Master Naturalists. Uh, go to their website, click on events. Now, if I'm a brand new bird walker and bird watcher and I'm going on a bird walk, are there certain things that I should know in terms of courtesy, bird watching courtesies and dress and equipment oh, and that, yeah. that sort of thing? Oh, of course. There is birding etiquette. Birding etiquette rule number one, don't rush out in front of the person leading the bird walk. Kind of hang in behind them. Birding etiquette number two, if you're going to have a conversation, do it quietly. If you're coming out with a friend and you're going, she, he or she is going to instruct you as you're going along, kind of move to the back of the group so that your conversation is not impeding people listening and looking for birds in the front. There are some other simple, simple rules. Always, even in the hottest weather, wear jeans or some other long pants, wear closed-toed shoes, because there'll be times when you want to step off the trail a few paces just to get a little closer to that bird over there, and you can walk through poison ivy and not even know it. So always wear long pants and always wear closed-toed shoes. Um, binoculars, oh geez, this is, this is a whole separate one-hour presentation. We have to do another. We have to do podcast number three. <laughs> Not a problem. Binoculars can range from $100. A good, decent pair of binoculars is going to cost at least $100. If you have much disposable income, you can spend $3,500 or $4,000 on a pair of binoculars. In my opinion, they're not that much better than the $100 pair. A good medium price pair of binoculars is going to cost four or $500. I recognize that's a chunk of change for some people. So $150 pair of binoculars, a set of Nikons or Eagle Optics or something that you, you can pick up at any one of the sporting goods stores will work just fine. Should they be waterproof? Oh, that's the one thing. Every good pair of binoculars says somewhere on it, waterproof. If it's not, don't buy it. If you get moisture inside the binoculars, Things will fog up in there at the strangest times, and you won't be able to see anything. And once there's moisture inside the binoculars, you can't get it out. I don't care how long you pack it in rice or put it in the oven at 150 degrees or anything else. Moisture is going to stay in those binoculars. So make sure it says waterproof. If you're looking at a little bit more expensive pair, make sure it says ED glass. ED stands for extra low dispersion which basically means that the glass itself is very heavy and dense and not much light is reflected off of it. Most of the light goes through it. And when you get to those $4,000 pair, you're paying for very expensive coatings that go on the lenses that reduce reflection even more. I indulged myself last year and bought a very expensive pair of binoculars. And you can see places underneath the bushes and off in corners that you can't make out with a, with a lesser pair of binoculars. But are my $2,000 binoculars four times better than my $500 binoculars? Probably not. Maybe twice as good, but not four times as good. So hit that four to $500 range 
And you're getting a very serviceable, excellent pair of binoculars that will last you for years and years. Most of the really expensive ones carry lifetime warranty. If you do anything to it, like run over it with your pickup truck, they'll replace it for free. But you pay a price for that. So bear those things in mind. When you, when you go binocular shopping, you can buy online, but before you buy them online, go somewhere, pick them up, hold them in your hands, see how heavy they feel to you. See if they're comfortable coming up to your eyes. See if you're, you're okay with the, the, what you see through the binoculars. Look at them, hold them, you know, feel them first. This is a, a check it out, test drive it before you buy it kind of thing. That makes sense. What about those birding scopes? Oh, even more money. Even uh, more money. They awesomely cool. You have one of those. I don't have you? a very nice one. Uh, it, it comes with a story that I'll shorten up. My mom, before she passed away, told my brother and sister and I to go out and buy something expensive with what we inherited that we wouldn't otherwise do. And I went out and bought an extremely expensive, for me at least, extremely expensive spotting scope. And it's very nice. It's up to 60 power. I can see things half a mile away like they're right in front of me. But that's useful for ducks. That's useful for waterfowl if, you, if they're at a distance, uh, shorebirds if they're at a distance, anything that's a long way off or anything that you want to get a really close look at. I mean, there will be birds up in the tree that you can say, all right, that's a, a scarlet tanager, but you may want to get a really close look at it. And you can use the scope to do that. So it, it's a nice piece of equipment, but that's something for people who are getting a little bit more into birding because it is going to set you back at least, at least several hundred dollars to several thousand dollars, depending on what you want to buy. Now, we talked about birding etiquette, and there's something that I just wanted to touch on, and that's playing bird sounds oh. to call birds. <laughs> yes. <laughs> let's uh, talk about okay. that, Scott. Let's, let's talk about using recordings to attract birds. Um, you can get recordings of birds doing what are called mobbing calls, and that's basically alarm calls that are going to draw other birds to where you're standing. The issue becomes, if you're doing it during the breeding season, you could be pulling birds off a nest, or you could be pulling a male bird away from foraging for mom and chicks. And anytime you do that, you're raising the corticosteroids in the bird's endocrine system. Uh, that's the same kind of fight or flight hormones that we have. And I don't know about you, but when mine get raised, I'm not particularly happy. So you want to avoid doing that. I do use it on occasion outside of the breeding season, uh, particularly like this time of year. There's a very small wren called a winter wren that spends the winters here. And it's not the breeding season and they're not competing for territory. And if you play the song, the bird that is hiding underneath all that brush next to the creek will come out, look around and go, oh, never mind. It's a human and disappear back in again. So there are times when it's maybe not entirely acceptable, but at least it's not stressing out the bird and it's not causing them to shirk their duties as mom or dad or defender of the territory. 
So it's you have to think about it and use it very, very sparingly. That's good to know. Thank you for clarifying that. Now I have another question that I'm curious about. When I was in New York, I had heard not to feed the birds during certain seasons because they would become dependent on it. Although we're talking bird feeders and how it's fun to watch them. And so what do you think about that? Oh, I have nine bird feeders in my backyard. I think that answers the question. It does. Um, There's some controversy about that. I think most people who are interested in birds or just read the newspaper or watch the news have heard that the estimates of 30 billion birds have been lost in North America over the last, what, 70 years, 50 years, something like that. Isn't that horrible? Yeah. And the bottom line is... Yes, they they are not going to become dependent on the feeder. And those of us who have feeders this winter are proof of that because we're getting pretty pretty low to middle in business at the feeders because there's so much food available because it's so nice and warm and everybody doesn't have to constantly be stoking the furnace to survive the day. And there's plenty of foods, there's plenty of food still out in terms of seeds on seeds on plants and insects and insect larvae on trees that are easy to get to. So supplemental feeding doesn't hurt. It, and in fact, it is probably helpful for a lot of the species that come to feeders. I don't do a lot of supplemental feeding in the summertime. I think I keep one, I keep seeds in one feeder in the summer, but in the wintertime, I load everything up. You mentioned about the reduction in the number of birds, which is startling to me. And as I understand, there are times when the artificial light is very, very dangerous for the birds and we lose a lot of them. Let's talk a little bit about that. This is is something that's actually very serious and it's keeping lights on in buildings at night above about four or five stories that's where the birds will be migrating. Most people don't realize it. Most songbirds migrate at night. Uh, Fewer predators, less wind, cooler temperatures, all of which makes flying like mad as fast as you can much easier. But yeah, there's there's a group in Dallas. There's a group in Fort Worth. There's a very well-known group in Chicago and New York and several other eastern cities of people who go out and do censuses of the dead birds they find on the street Uh. in the morning. It is very much an issue. I always wondered why it was people kept all those lights on in buildings at at night because crying out loud, that's got to cost money. And why are you spending money on the building when people aren't in it? So uh, yeah, people are becoming more cognizant of that. And a lot of like the new greener buildings. I forget what the certifications are. There are things you can put on the glass that humans don't see that the birds will see to let them know that that is not an open space. It's it's actually something they don't want to run into. So it's, it's starting to come around, but it's going to be a while because it's going to cost money. But yes, it is a serious problem. It is. And I'm so glad the awareness is being raised about it. And hopefully that will continue. And and I'm hoping that the listeners will become aware of it too. And who knows, maybe they can come up with even more things that can be done. That would be wonderful. Because even even if you have windows in the back of your house and, and birds occasionally run into them, 
you can get things you can adhere to the window that people don't really see. There are thin lines and so forth that the birds will notice and they'll know that that's something they can't fly through. And you can even do that in your own house. That's not very expensive. Is that something we can just Google, Scott? Yep. Okay. That's good to know because that happens occasionally at my house and I'm always filled with guilt <laughs> when they run into <laughs> yes. to my window. I hate that. So I'm going to actually do that. And as you know, on a personal note, I love to photograph. I love to photograph birds. Yes. And I finally checked off the male painted bunting oh, off of girl. my bucket list. And it's the most incredibly beautiful bird. If the listeners don't know what it looks like, they need to look it up because it's wonderful. And I have a new bird on my bucket list, Scott. I would like to take a nice picture of an owl, but owls are nocturnal and I'm not necessarily nocturnal. Do you have any advice for someone like me? Coffee. <laughs> um, seriously. Owl prowls happen. Uh, there's an owl prowl at Lima two or three times a year. I have never done one at Clear Creek because we've all really only heard barred owls at Clear Creek. Early in the morning on a bird walk, sometime on a cloudy day, you'll hear owls. This time of year, barred owls, the owl that goes, who cooks for you? Who cooks for you all? They're calling. Eastern screech owls, the little tiny ones are doing their, their little warble call at night. The best time to go on an owl prowl is probably starting about four o'clock in the morning, which means that I don't go on them unless I'm being paid, basically. Uh, <laughs> we'll have to talk later, Scott. We'll, yeah, we'll talk later. <laughs> it is kind of fun. It comes with all the inherent things that go bump in the night and do not go out by yourself and do not go someplace you've never been before. So you're familiar with it. I've been on owl prowls at Leela, and I work there probably between 10 and 20 hours a week. And I've gotten lost in the middle of the night. And it was a good thing I was with a group because I'm wandering off and they're going, hey, dummy, over here. But it's fun to do. In the wintertime, you'll find that normally speaking, we have barred owls, eastern screech owls, and great horned owls in the Dallas area. In the wintertime, we also get short-eared owls, long-eared owls, and occasionally a burrowing owl. Burrowing owls are actually diurnal. They're active during the day, but they're very shy, and they're going to be off in some corner where no one is going to see them, except for the one down by NASA that sits on the sign that says burrowing owl with an arrow. Uh, <laughs> I have actually seen that, that actual owl. It doesn't always come back every year, but it comes back fairly often. So as far as taking pictures of owls, you're going to have to be out in the middle of the night or at okay. least late in the morning. I've been told that four o'clock in the morning is the quietest time of day. So shortly after four o'clock in the morning is maybe the time to go wander and listen for owls. If you're serious about it, go someplace like the woods around the lake on North Shore Park. There are concrete trails, so you're safe. There will be enough cover that the owls will like it. It's near water, so there'll be lots of critters wandering around that the owls might like to swoop down and eat. So it's a good spot to go. Good to know. Well, I'm getting excited now. There's hope for me yet. Now, although we have focused on birds, as a master naturalist, you are all about 
the amazing nature of North Texas. I know even on your bird walks, you're wonderful about pointing out different plants and that kind of thing. As knowledgeable as you are about the plants and animals that exist in our area, what message would you like to leave people with? Oh, goodness. I have to sound wise and thoughtful and all of that. You are wise. You are. You know much about this. Thank you, Susan. It's (laughs) nice to have a fan club, even if it's just you. Uh, (laughs) The world is getting less green every day. There's more concrete. There's more roads. There's more buildings. There's more, good Lord, there's more homes. We need to save our green space. Study after study after study has shown that people who are in contact with the natural world have a better view of life. They have a calmer, easier going, not personality, but at least frame of mind. I myself, um, I have a very close friend who's one of the regular volunteers at Leela. He is also our oldest volunteer. He's 79. And he shows up and works two days a week, just like clockwork. And he calls Leela his happy place. Hmm. He can go there for peace in a world that sometimes troubles him a great deal. And I think everybody needs a place like that. And I would highly recommend there are excellent parks in and around the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Pick one out. One of the things you can do as a birder, there's this attitude called slow birding, which I sometimes describe to pick a spot where you think you see birds or where you've seen birds before. And make that what's called your sit spot. Just go and sit. After about four or five minutes, as far as the birds are concerned, you're part of the furniture. If you're not moving around and you're not staring at them and throwing things at them and looking somewhat predator-ish, they'll just get to where they ignore you. And you'd be amazed how many different birds that you didn't know were there will just be around. So... If you're, uh, you want to try slow birding, find a sit spot. Go once a week. Spend 45 minutes. Just sit. It's also a chance to just go, ah. And even though I'm an old retired guy, uh, between volunteer activities and grandchildren and everything else, I have a full-time job. And sometimes I'm working 50-hour weeks, just like the bad old days. But outside and doing the things that you love, right? I'm, I made... The decision when I retired that I would I would be outdoors for the last however long of my life I'm going to spend it making the world a greener place. But find a spot, learn to bird, find some birders. We're nice folks. Absolutely. Thank you, Scott. I feel like just the imagery that I have from our conversation, I feel like I've taken a walk outside. So I appreciate that. I feel better already. Well, thank you very much. Uh, that, that's quite a compliment, Susan. Well, I appreciate you talking to us. Thank you so much. And for anyone who's listening, 730 at the gate, 3310 Collins Road, Denton, Texas. Set your alarm. Yes, set your alarm and show up. Don't be like the, there's some people who shall remain nameless who spent a great deal of time emailing with me to make sure they were on the reminder list for the bird walk and everything else. And they've never come. Their neighbor comes every month. And I say, so where is so-and-so? Oh, well, the house was dark this morning. I guess they're not going to come again. But they were really adamant that they wanted to learn birding and come out. But you got to be able to get up in the morning. If you're not a get up in the morning person, 
you can bird right about an hour before sunset. The best time to bird is in the morning. Everybody wakes up and they're hungry, so they're active. Another good time to bird is about an hour before sunset because again, we're hungry, we wanna feed, we wanna get something to eat before we bed down for the night. So everybody's gonna be out poking around and seeing what they can find. So if you wanna try afternoon birding, it may not be as active as morning birding, but it will still be active because the birds have to get out and get something to eat before they bed down for the night. When you're that little, you gotta feed a lot. So be there or be square. That's it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Scott. You're more than welcome, Susan. And we can pick another topic and do a third one anytime. Sounds good to me. All right. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Scott Keister. Thanks for listening and happy birding. The Ollie at UNT podcast is recorded and edited by Susan Supak and produced by me, Jordan Williams. If you enjoyed this episode, check out our previous interviews and subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. To receive email notifications about each new episode, join our email list at olli.unt.edu slash podcast. 